You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. I've had the privilege of leading several different small groups. A small group is basically uh, a group of people that meets weekly to uh, grow in their relationship with God and grow in their relationship with each other. But in all of these years, leading different small groups, I've always made sure we kick off with an icebreaker question. I asked somebody in the group if they'll come up with this particular question, and basically an icebreaker is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, a question designed to break the ice. When a group of people come in a room together, uh, there's often tension, and so an icebreaker question kind of helps break the ice of that moment. Now, the questions are usually somewhat basic, uh, things like, what's your favorite cereal and why? Uh, they start to get a little bit more advanced, like uh, if you could fly or read minds, which one would it be and why? If you could go on vacation somewhere, anywhere, where would it be and why? And so, you know, you kind of go around the room and people answer, Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not so funny, it's kind of forced laughter in those moments. But the point is, is warm everybody up. Uh, remove the tension kind of in the moment. Now, over the years, I've heard some really, really great questions. And I've heard some really, really good answers. But notably, I have almost never heard the same question. Almost ever have I heard the same question except for one, except for one question. It shows up in every group, even when the previous group doesn't know the old group or the new group, the same question shows up over and over and over again. And I think it's a very DC-ish kind of question. That's really my only conclusion as over the years I've heard this question. But the question is basically phrased like this, and some of you who are part of our small groups, you're gonna know right away, you're gonna be familiar with this question. The question is this, which conspiracy theory <laughs> is so believable that it might be true? Which, which conspiracy theory is so believable that it might be true? Now, this is going to get fun and probably a little offensive, so I apologize ahead of time. I don't love this question. Uh, I don't love it because I've heard some really, really crazy answers over the years. Not particularly from members, well, maybe one or two of you, but... Um, <laughs> Our groups are open, anybody can, anybody can pop in, but I, I don't love the, these, this question in particular. I get nervous, I, I, I think to myself, oh no, am I, gonna have to, am I gonna have to do damage control? Am I gonna have to step in? Is someone gonna get upset? But I usually just kinda nervously laugh my way through the icebreaker. Now I know none of you asked again this morning, but I have decided, I thought it would be interesting to share the best of over the years of this question. The best of this particular question. So very briefly, going to be up on the screen, very briefly, we'll start with a softball. Uh, number one, of course, aliens, right? That's one that's very common. Uh, aliens exist and the government is hiding them from us. Number two, starts to get a little more interesting, something called the flat earth theory, which is this idea that the earth isn't round. Haven't heard that too much. Uh, next, this one's a little more common, the moon landings. This is the, uh, yeah, some, some of you <laughs> apparently uh, believe this. 
Uh, this idea that uh, the moon landings were probably faked. Number four, this one, I, I don't understand it, but this is a Denver International Airport. Uh, there's something about that this might be a secret base of some sort, an underground lair. I, I don't know. Uh, number five, chemtrails. I, I researched this. I never, knew, I, never, I never really understood what this meant, but this idea that planes uh, are somehow dropping these chemicals in the skies and they somehow control people. I haven't heard that one too much, maybe once or twice. Uh, number six, I just put her up here because I hear about her <laughs> a lot. Uh, but Hillary Clinton or anything related to the, to the, to the Clinton uh, family, and we're going to go really quick, I guess, through the rest of these. Number seven, uh, Helen Keller, some things about Helen Keller. Number eight, mechanical birds, which I actually think, <laughs> this is mine. Uh, I do tend to think that there's some, some interesting truth to this. Uh, number nine, JFK. And number 10, an especially weird one, it's a society of these kind of reptilian uh, human hybrids. I've heard this one a couple times. Has anyone heard of this, or is this just me? Okay, only, only Jackson, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, but a conspiracy theory is basically a belief or an explanation about a particular set of circumstances or an event, and it's usually uh, a sinister group that's responsible for the event or the situation, and most of these, of course, would fit that idea. But uh, in our, I should say, uh, to be fair, sometimes when you think about conspiracy theories, it's, uh, it's fair. You know, some people have used their brains to, to piece together information, and I'm glad people question things. But in our passage this morning, we'll see how surrounding the most important event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was a powerful conspiracy theory. Uh, the theory goes, essentially, Jesus was a liar, and after he died, his disciples stole his body, they stole it, and they told everybody he's been raised to life. He was dead, but they made him a legend. That was the story. But on this Easter morning, we'll also see that theory doesn't work. There's no hoax here. The disciples saw something. They experienced something. They saw and they experienced with their own eyes and their own senses the resurrected Son of God. Jesus Christ, who raises from the dead just like he said he would. Jesus Christ, who defeated the grave, who beat death, and on the third day raises to life and makes payment for our sins just as he said he would and walks out free and alive right out of the tomb. There is an empty tomb this morning in the Middle East. There is an occupied throne in heaven. He is alive, and this reality changed these early disciples' lives. It rocked their world, and if you find yourself in Jesus Christ this morning, it's changed your life as well. It's rocked your world as well. My idea, my main idea of this morning, this passage, it's going to flow right from the text, and it's this. Happy Easter, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is alive. And Easter this morning is a celebration about all that he has done, not a demonstration about what a church can do. It's not about the show. It's not about Facebook ads for a church or us. It's all about God 
who has raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Now, my outline is going to be up on the screen. It's also going to flow right from this passage, or these passages, I should say, and it's this. Number one, know Jesus. Number two, worship Jesus. Number three, follow Jesus. Know, grow, and go. Essentially, that's what we have this morning. If this really is the Son of God, He deserves all of us. Now, uh, maybe you've been here over the last couple of weeks, but we have been, or maybe this is your first time, but we have been up close and personal with Jesus Christ. You remember last week, Palm Sunday, we saw how after years of fame and sometimes controversy, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It wasn't a horse, it wasn't a chariot, it's a donkey. It's essentially a picture of Jesus saying, I am not the kind of king that you want. I'm not a political king. I am not a military king. I'm something else. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, everybody starts shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which essentially means save us now, save us now. It's his entrance song, so to speak. A day later, we find Jesus who goes to the temple. And the temple is essentially the main hub of religious life there in Jerusalem. And there things start to get really, really heated. The chief priests, these religious leaders of that day, do not like Jesus. They do not like him. And so over and over and over again, he's in the temple, and they're creating entrapment questions for him. Questions that are meant to get him stuck. Questions that are meant to, to, to derive sound bites, we might say. The, the questions basically have two options. It's either A or it's B. If he answers A, he'll alienate everybody in B. If he answers B, he'll alienate everybody in A. They're trying to entangle him with polarizing questions. But over and over again, he outsmarts them. He exposes their motives. And the people who are listening to him grow more and more impressed. Eventually, Jesus himself, he goes on the offense. He kind of drops the mic on the chief priests, these religious teachers, and he calls them out. He does a scorched earth on them. He says they love money. They love power. They love status more than justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's true, but it is brutal. A few days later, a couple days, maybe even hours goes by, and the chief priests, these religious leaders, they meet. And basically what happens at this meeting is that they have had enough of Jesus. Jesus is a problem. He's a big problem. He's a disruption. And so they get him arrested. He's put on trial. It's a joke. And the trial essentially revolves around two things, really around the idea of blasphemy. They say two things. Number one, Jesus said he's going he's gonna to take down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Now, that's a misquote. He said he, would, he was referring to his body. He said, I'm going I'm to take down this body and I'll raise it up in three days. Number two, he also said that he was the son of God. Now, this was true. He did say that. Eventually, Jesus is handed over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he's condemned to die. The crowds turn against him. This is Good Friday. He's beat up, and then he's crucified. It's an ugly scene. And then just before he dies, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he dies. And two things happen. Number one, the curtain in the temple is torn into two. It represents the access, the, the barrier that was in place to God. That curtain is torn. And also at the foot of the cross, a Roman centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. Truly really leads us this morning to the fact that Jesus' body was then put into a tomb. 
he's really dead. And on this Easter morning, we pick up on Saturday morning, which really leads us to our first point, know Jesus. Verse 62 of chapter 27. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So Jesus is dead. And on Saturday, these chief priests, the religious leaders of that day, they go back to the governor. They would have probably been thinking about damage control. Their top concern now is one of the things they remember Jesus kept saying. They remember that he kept saying, after three days, I will rise from the dead. And so they thought that definitely can't happen. But what could happen is that his disciples might come at night, pretend that he's come back to life and steal the body, and then make him a legend. And so they asked for guards. They said, we want some guards to come and seal this tomb and guard the body. Sunday morning, chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. It's actually a group of women we read about in the other Gospels, but specifically mentioned here are the Marys. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which is not Jesus' mom, uh, these aren't supporting cast members. They are disciples of Christ. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So as the Marys are heading there sometime before the earth shakes, and the text says the angel of the Lord is there. He looks just like the descriptions we see in the Bible and outside of the Bible of angels. And notice he's rolled back the stone. He's just sitting on it. It's kind of a boss move. And the guards have all had a panic attack on the ground. They've passed out cold. And this angel is just kind of sitting on the stone that's been rolled away. Verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he has said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So Mary and Mary, they arrive. The angel says, don't be afraid. He doesn't want them to drop, so to speak. But notice he says, I know why you've come. You're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. You're looking to anoint his dead body. You're here to pay tribute to him as a symbol, to lift up his name and remember him as a good teacher. But the angel says, look, that Jesus isn't here. He has risen from the dead. He's alive. He's the son of God. The point is, they are looking for a Jesus that they thought they knew, the Jesus who would stay dead, a Jesus they now were going to look to as a symbol, as a good teacher, as a memory. But the angel says, no, no, he's alive. Know that Jesus. And likewise, for many of us, when we think about Jesus, we are looking 
for a symbol. We're looking for a good teacher. As a memory, we're seeking the Jesus we thought we knew, the religious leader who died. But we need to hear the words of this angel this morning, don't we? He's not dead. He's risen from the dead. He's alive. That's the Jesus we need to know, the living Son of God. Now, some of us, when we think about the resurrection of Christ, we really struggle. We struggle to believe this. We're not the chief priest, but maybe we think it's all a legend, say like conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. We've heard C.S. Lewis's argument that he's either lord, lunatic, or a liar, but we've thrown that argument out. We say he wasn't a liar, he wasn't a lunatic, but he wasn't lord, he was just a good guy. He didn't come back from the dead. It's afterwards that his followers came and made him a legend. Is he a good guy? Sure. Is he a symbol? Absolutely. Is he a good teacher? Sure. But is he the son of God? No. Some of us are there this morning. Some of us are functionally there this morning. But on this Easter morning, God doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to think about the actual evidence. He doesn't just want blind faith. He wants us to have a real faith, faith that can stand from the ups and the downs of life and the highs and lows. But he wants us to know the real Jesus. And we get there by looking at the evidence. What evidence? Well, there's a lot. But one sticks out here right in this passage. Something sticks out that casts doubt on the idea that some guys got in a room and made a dead guy God through their writings. What is that? Well, it's the fact that the women are listed here as the first witnesses to the resurrection. We also see this in all the other Gospels, particularly Mary Magdalene, verse 5. Now, why is this important? Well, because back then, readers and hearers alike would have been very, very biased against women. We all know that, especially in ancient societies, women were very marginalized. They had a lower status. So it makes absolutely no sense why if you were trying to get this story off the ground, if you were trying to make Jesus a believable legend, why you'd say or why you'd write women into this story as the primary witness. In that context, it would be like, sadly, if today I were trying to tell you, hey, ghosts are real. And you said, how do you know? And I were to point upstairs and say, the kids under five in Kingdom Kids have told me they're real. You would say, what? The point is, there's no way back then you would pick women if you were trying to make a fake story believable. But the women are included here. They're central. Why is that? Well, the best reason is because it actually happened. They were there, and they reported what they saw. The stone really was rolled away. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Consider the evidence. Know the real Jesus. He's not just a symbol this morning or a dead teacher or even a legend. As the angel says, he's been raised to life. Notice the passage continues, and we see our second point this morning. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. The angel essentially says, he's alive, go and tell the others. They run off with excitement and notice they don't quite make it. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now this is not a great translation. Greetings is the Greek word karate. It means, hey, it means, hey, how you doing? 
They're running back, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he says, hey. And notice verse 9. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This picture here, just, just imagine this. It's overwhelming. It's been a horrible couple of days. They saw him die. They lost their hope. But then they hear his voice. They see him. He's all good. He's alive. And he just pops right in front of them and says confidently and with all the gentleness in his soul, Hey, how are you? And the response is they fall down and they worship him. Now, why is this? Why would they worship him? Well, in that moment, in that short period of time, thoughts are rushing through their heads. It's a natural impossibility that this could be the person they just saw die. But they know. Somehow they just know. It's him. It's him. And they fall down and they worship. It's a total paradigm-shattering event in their lives. Now, a paradigm is basically a perspective. It's a perspective on how we understand and view life. It's assumptions, it's concepts, it's values that help us to understand and make sense of the world. And for them, their paradigm on God and life and truth and Jesus himself is absolutely shattered in that moment. They see him and they fall down and they worship him. And likewise, to know Jesus Christ and to know him as the resurrected Son of God this morning means we worship him. We know him to be our God. The one who the book of Hebrews says has the power of an indestructible life. He shatters the paradigms in each and every one of our lives. The paradigm that says this life is all there is, is wrecked as we look and we worship the risen Son of God, who says He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Him, though you die, you can live. And whoever lives and believes in Him will never die. The paradigm that God is far off and doesn't care about you is crushed as you look to the resurrected Christ. He has come to you, and God wants you to deal with Him. And the paradigm that all the religions in this world are the same is broken as we look to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from him. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So there's the conspiring. The guards get up. They go back into the city. They know they're in some trouble. But there's no way to explain the events at the tomb. And yet there's no body. And so they talk to the chief priests. And notice there's no awe. There's no wonder here. There's no faith. Their minds are already made up. They think there is no possible way this Jesus person could be aligned with God, so they don't believe. Instead, they come up with some type of plausible explanation of what they think happened. His disciples came by night and stole the body. Now again, some of this morning, we struggle to believe the resurrection. And so maybe we don't worship him as the son of God, 
we think again maybe he's a legend or maybe he's really a lunatic or he's a liar. But again, on this Easter Sunday morning, God does not want you to stay there. He wants you to think about the actual evidence. He doesn't just want your blind faith. He wants you to have a real faith, a faith that can sustain you in the ups and downs. He wants us to worship Jesus. And we get there by looking at the evidence. Well, what evidence? Well, as mentioned, there's a lot. But another one sticks out right here in this passage. Something else sticks out in this passage that casts doubt on the idea that some guys went in a room and through the writings made Jesus God. Well, what is that? Well, it's the fact that their worldviews changed overnight. It's the fact that their worldviews changed overnight, particularly their Jewish worldviews. First century Jews generally believed that at the end of time, God would restore all things. He would bring hope and life and light to the world. He would get rid of death and suffering. There would be a resurrection and the end would come and everyone would get a new body. But here is one thing that the Jewish worldview would never, ever, ever allow. A human being being the son of God. They could have never imagined God becoming a human. They were radically monotheist and still are today. And not only that, there's no way ever that they could have imagined an individual physical resurrection in the middle of history, ever. That would have made absolutely no sense. They would have been taught against those things from day one. But notice something amazing happens here in the first century. All of a sudden, devout Jews, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, begin to worship a human being as God. Though they were taught to be radical, monotheists, they're now worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Something happened. And what happened was the stone was rolled away, and Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. A Japanese Catholic writer by the name of Shusaki Endo says this. It'll be up on the screen in the book, The Life of Jesus. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed in the resurrection to start with. Consider the evidence. Know the real Jesus. Worship him for all that he is. God in the flesh, the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the passage continues, and we see our third and final point this morning. Follow Jesus, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the parting words of Jesus Christ, sometimes called the Great Commission. It's been days since his resurrection, and they meet him, and most of them worship him. Soon all of them will worship him. But notice he gives them a charge. He says, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to follow me, and I'll be with you always. The idea here is to follow Jesus. Follow him as he continues to redeem the world, 
help others to follow him as he changes lives, be salt, be light to this world that he loves so much. And likewise, we this morning, if we know him, if we worship him, he calls us to follow him, to participate in his work through our work, to be part of the church and the mission of the church, the institution on earth that will never fade, perish, or spoil. But perhaps this morning some of us still struggle. We struggle to still want to follow Jesus. We struggle to believe in the resurrection. But once again, on this Easter morning, God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to think about the actual evidence. He doesn't just want blind faith. He wants a real faith, a faith that can sustain you in the ups and downs of this hard life. He wants us to follow Jesus, and we get there by looking at the evidence. Well, what evidence? As mentioned, there is a lot, but there's one thing that sticks out loud from this passage. It casts major doubt again on the fact that some people would go in a room and say, this is God through their writings. And well, what is that? Well, it's the amazing fact that Christianity changes people. The resurrection transforms lives. It changed my life, and it changed so many of your lives. But if we're honest, in our society today, there is a massive gap between how Christianity is viewed and portrayed on social media and the actual characteristics and actions of Christians. There's a huge disparity. Now, I have no interest this morning in trying to minimize the faults of the church or Christians. Perhaps you've been hurt by the church or by a Christian. I don't want to dismiss that fact. In fact, because the gospel is real, we can talk about it. We can be honest about it. We are sinners that need a Savior. But the truth is, real Christianity changes people. The resurrection transforms people. It is a force for good, and it always has been. Just consider a few up on the screen. Number one, Christianity is actually a champion for the vulnerable. As opposed to the lie that Christians aren't really pro-life, they're just pro-birth, the data tells a very different story. The adoption rate among practicing Christians more than doubles the average U.S. household. Number two, Christianity fosters fulfilling intimacy. As opposed to the lie Christians are sexually repressive and anti-sex, they create a toxic purity culture, stats don't lie. Church-going Christians who are married are in the category with the most fulfilling sex lives in America. Number three, Christianity can actually improve mental health as opposed to the lie Christianity is emotionally repressive and bad for your mental health. Again, the data don't lie. Church going is related to less depression, less suicide, greater social support, greater meaning in life, more volunteering, greater civic engagement, and children more likely to grow up happy. In fact, one study shows that there was one segment of the population whose mental health improved during the pandemic. Who was it? Christians. Number four, Christianity is a force for poverty alleviation as opposed to the truth, Christians don't care about the poor, only political power. The truth is, the stats say, people who pray and attend church regularly significantly outpace their irreligious neighbors in generosity. We could go on and on and on. The stats say, the more someone attends church, the less that person will commit a major crime. Kids raised in church-going households are less likely to be depressed and use drugs. Christian marriages are 35% less likely to end in divorce. One study even says church attendance can add up to seven years on your life. The point is not that the church is perfect. It's not. The point is, is that the resurrection changes people. He changed me, and he can change you. 
Know Jesus this morning. Worship Jesus this morning. Follow Jesus this morning. As we close, maybe you're here this morning and you've been exploring Christianity over the last few moments, the last few weeks, the last few years. That's great. I want to encourage you, look to Jesus Christ. Look to the primary source. Don't start, as a lot of people do, by asking yourself, does Christianity fit with who I am? Does it work for me? Why not? Because if the resurrection really happened, it will work for you. It means there's a God, and he made you, and he loves you. And in Jesus, there is a way to life. He can change you. You'll never be able to accept that, though, unless you see your need for God's grace. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, there is grace for you and I. In the cross of Christ, it is Jesus paying it all. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is God stamping on all of history that the payment is complete. Trust in him this morning. Know him today. Worship the risen son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.